Welcome to the 15th episode of PH Pod, a podcast brought to you by the Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation on health and social justice. I'm Rabina Viracone. That's a lovely book you've put together. Yeah, so I bring some photos. Um, and then there's a picture when he was about four years old. We sitting on a bed and he's biting his toenails. Oh my gosh. What a toddler thing to do, right? right? And it's so deep, right? Because his daughter at that same age was sitting on the bed biting her toenails <laughs> and I'm laughing and crying at the same time. I'm like, oh my <laughs> God, how did she learn this? Ruth Rollins speaks fondly of her son, Warren Daniel Hairston. She called him Danny. And it was like my son was living through her, you know, and that's one of the highlights as well, that he left a daughter behind, my only granddaughter. Danny was murdered in January of 2007. His homicide went unsolved. Ruth Rollins is the founder of the We Are Better Together Warren Daniel Hairston Project, located on the Roxbury-Dorchester border here in Boston. After the murder of her son, Danny, and the incarceration of her second son, Ruth founded the project to help connect and heal women and girls affected by violence and incarceration. The organization was created based on the tragedy that I went through and services not being in place to support me. We Are Better Together offers an array of services, including food and transportation services, recovery referrals, and group therapy sessions. One of their most notable services is their annual retreats. These retreats are filled with personal testimonials, sisterhood, and song. So can you tell us a little bit about We Are Better Together and what that program does? Yeah, I had supported so many other mothers and families that were impacted by community violence, domestic violence, mm -hmm. substance abuse, um, but I never knew that a tragedy would hit my door. In 2007, my son was murdered. Um, and at the time, there was so many services and things in place that work with survivors that lost their children due to community violence. So I got involved with a lot of prevention work. You know, um, I am credited as a co-founder of Operation Lipstick, which addresses straw buying. And, you know, I did a lot of work in the community around that. Um, but through my own grief and my own healing, um, I was still suffering in silence. I had another son that was incarcerated due to gun violence, and because of the stigma and shame of having a child causing some of the harm in the community, I had never talked about it. Um, through the violence prevention work that I was doing in the community, you know, I work very closely with a lot of public officials under Menino's administration, you know, our former mayor, uh, that 
I was able to bring my truth into the room um, in regards to having lost a son to community violence and also have another son that was incarcerated due to gun violence. And that's when I gave birth to We Are Better Together. Unfortunately, um, 13, 14 years ago, when I came out with my truth, um, there weren't many women, or at least not coming forward, saying how they had, were impacted on both sides of gun violence, especially because of the stigma and shame that goes along with it. So when you say both sides, what do you mean by both sides? So, yeah, the language that we use with We Are Better Together, we um, we try not to be victimized um, people that are impacted by community harm, which is very complex, right? That we realize most often someone that's a victim or someone that's causing harm could also be a victim at any given case, right? So we truly believe that what we do to one side, we have to do to another. So when I say impacting on both sides, like in my in my situation, which we work with countless other women that are impacted the same way, that have lost a child due to homicide or maybe injured due to community harm, violence. And then also having another child that could be incarcerated due to gun violence. And in some cases, that have taken someone's life. I imagine that's a very difficult thing for families to come together when maybe one person is the mother of someone who has harmed another person's child. So is that something that you face when you bring these these people together and there's maybe a lot of hurt and pain that, that gets involved with that type of healing process? Most definitely. And our program's a little unique. Um, a lot of people ask, how do we get referrals? How do we get people? It's really word to mouth. And um, a lot of the women that we work with, I hate to use this language, but it's true, systems have failed them based on their children that are still causing community harm. Mm -hmm. And through our mission, um, we lead with accountability, but we also lead with compassion and we take great pride in a non-judgment space. So what does that mean? That in the event if a mother's child took someone's life and that person lost their child that we tried to create an opportunity so that mothers that child that took someone's life is able to have a circle and they're able to apologize and ask for forgiveness yeah so you really do bring people together that's the essence of the program And again, everyone isn't, you know, it's not that we're dismissing anyone's grief. You know, it's not that we're saying, okay, let's forgive and forget, because we know um, grief and loss and healing is an ongoing process. And at least in the work that we do, you can forgive one day and you can be angry all over again, going through the different stages of grief. Yeah, it's it's not linear. Right. It's a process. Right. And there's something else you've mentioned before responsibility. And when you say we, we try to really acknowledge people's trauma, you're not negating responsibility. Can you speak more about that? Yeah. So again, that is very complex as well. You know, trauma can be many things, you know, um, could have went through the system, through foster care, could have had abandonment issue. We realize that everyone's trauma looks a little different. So when we talk about accountability, um, it's really looking at self. 
right? It doesn't mean that you're a bad parent. It doesn't mean that you raised this monster. We realize that children weren't born murderers. Children weren't born um, causing harm. A lot of it is based on our own personal experience and the trauma that we went through. Um, and a lot of it is generational, you know, um, and when we see community violence, it's historical violence that, you know, you may not be necessarily um, giving your child spankings, but it could be verbal abuse. Yeah. And can you talk more about historical trauma and that term and how you believe it affects the people that you serve? And sometimes you have to explain what historical trauma is to them. Yeah. So, you know, um, my background is domestic violence and trauma. I've been doing this work for over 20 years. And um, it's something about talking about trauma and mental health in our community that we do not buy into um, from the inner city. I am from Roxbury, and you know, um, I think when we start talking about mental health or trauma, people are like, I'm not crazy, I don't need that. Yeah. So we got real creative when we address um, trauma with the work that we do What We Are Better Together. We created a template that we tend to go backwards in order to go forward. So what does that mean? Going back to our own trauma history, going back to things that impacted us, that has a lot to do with how we parent our children. And they're good people, you know, including myself, owning my home, you know, a professional background. Although, you know, I've been impacted by trauma in different ways that played a part into how I parent my children. And a lot of the women that we work with, um, you can hear firsthand that they might have fell short with the older kids that they're working with, but due to trauma and violence, they are currently now raising their grandchildren. Mm -hmm. And you're saying so maybe the trauma they experience as a child, they're not projecting onto their children, right. not knowing that they're doing that, and that's the, the cycle of historical trauma. Right, so if you come from a home with violence and chaos. Um, and when you think about children, you have three or four, you know, you have your one that could possibly grow up to be like a batterer. You have another one that could possibly be the overachiever. Then you have the one that's just like you and it affects their parenting and it affects what was given to them. They may not do it the way you did it, but it's still doing it in a way that it's still impacting the trauma of the little people. Yeah. You also mentioned that families and people who have been incarcerated or have been a part of homicide, survivors of homicide, you mentioned that they feel that the systems failed them. By systems, do you mean law enforcement, structural racism, yeah, I mean, all of the above, like, um, from my understanding, they have all these youth programs that a lot of them, you know, they age out at the age of 16. There's nothing in place to support these young men or young girls in regards to higher education and, you know, Boys and Girls Club and other things. So what happens is that, you know, especially if they got an IEP, like if they have a learning disability, right? Um, that's when the trouble starts. 
That's when the labeling starts. Mm -hmm. That's when Social Security, you know, um, starts. And, you know, I just feel like that we have a head start on a lot of these young men that end up incarcerated, right? And we might have failed when they were younger, but how about now when they're adults, when they're 23, going away for four or five years and they're coming out? How do you... How do you think they feel that society views them? Like the stigma that they feel. They feel they're being judged or blamed and no one understands that backstory that you just explained. Right. So so how do they feel that society might view them and how they might be misunderstood? Yeah, most definitely racism. You know, racism, stigmatize. Even when they do turn themselves around and they want to do the right thing, it's low self-esteem because it was always felt like they're bad and they don't belong. You know, um, especially being a young black man. Yeah. Even a young a woman, you know, we're always told that we're angry. And, you know, with a young black man, they don't even have to say anything. Their demeanor. Right. You know, so... And nine out of 10, well, I say 10 out of 10, those are someone's children. Those are someone's baby. What you see isn't really who they are. The same way someone gave me a chance, most of them just need a chance. You know, and that's what we do at We Are Better Together. We put hope into the hopeless. This is my son, David. Oh, on the beach? Yeah. Is he running towards the camera or is he busy? No, he's just standing there. I rarely really talk about my other son, but due to the trauma and him being a returning citizen, um, I'm struggling with the lack of services and support for the young men that are coming back into the community with reentry services. Like rehabilitating into greater society. Right, right. Like, especially me, I know so many people and I can help so many. But what we realize with our young black men and our brown and black men that we need more men of color Mm -hmm. for therapists and support that can help them around the mental health piece. And does that come from people in the community, maybe a young black man, seeing another young black man as like a therapist who will understand what they've been through and they're more apt to really open up and trust them. Right, right, because it's not the trauma they endured while they were incarcerated, it's what they're coming out to. So when my son came back, mostly all his friends were murdered. All of them, I'll say out of 20, 12 have been murdered. So this is a young man that went away for a number of years and mentally, he's still 22. You know, so what happens is they self-medicate with the weed or whatever else it may be. Mm -hmm. But I think in terms of strategically and from a public health perspective, we need to meet them at the door. Because if we don't, it's a disaster is ready to happen. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like I've said this before too, but the, the level of dehumanization that they go through when they're incarcerated is just an element of neglect that even when they come back into the society, we're like, oh, okay, they're let's release them back into the world. It's like, you still don't see them as a human worth putting resources into and confidence and, you know, give them hope that they're gonna be okay in this new life that they have, right? I'll say one thing, since George Floyd, we got a little better. Yeah. We got a little better that some people are taking accountability and service, but again, it's not enough. Yeah. 
You know, we just had a shoot and they said this guy went away for 10 years for a crime he didn't commit, but while he was incarcerated, he killed somebody or stabbed somebody, but he was a time bomb ready to go off. Who was working with him? Who was following him? So that's what I'm saying. Like, we need to do some prevention to prevent, we get, we got the key. It's like the law and the carceral system, it's all reactionary, right? right. It happens and then respond with punitive measures. It's never, right. why did this happen? Do you, and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but the fact that your son's murder has gone unsolved, how does that make you feel in terms of how people view community violence and the people who have been affected by it? Is that it? makes me go even harder. That makes me going even harder. You know, and I don't think I mentioned it on the interview, my son was causing harm in the community, but it didn't, it did matter, but it didn't. That was my child and his life mattered. And it was countless others, but society and systems re-victimize him in death. And that's what they did with my son. Instead of honoring his name, they dehumanize him in the paper. They talked about his criminal record. They no longer do that. Mm. Because mothers like me and others that advocated for that, even in depth, they're talking about their criminal record. But I knew his life mattered. Mm -hmm. And they set it up in a way that mothers suffer in silence and they don't speak up. So all that does is push me to continue to walk in my truth. Because I know there's a lot more mothers not like me, but I give them the courage to walk in their truth. So as we are better together, garnered support from governmental agencies or those involved in law enforcement. I know you had the opportunity to engage with Michelle Wu recently, our newly elected mayor in Boston, the first woman and person of color to be elected into the position, but also Rachel Rollins, the Suffolk County District Attorney. Most definite. Um, under Menino, Mayor Walsh, you know, Rachel Rollins and, you know, newly elected Michelle Wu, they get it. So you feel like by having the support of people in those positions of power, you're really able to do your work efficiently and have it be supported. Most definitely, especially Rachel Rollins, she gets it. It doesn't mean that she lets everyone out free, but she understands. And I'll say that again and again, because most people that have caused community harm have been victims as well. Mm -hmm. So she understands it, you know, in regards to um, the support we need as an agency, um, what we need as a community, what we need in regards to holding the police and public officials as they allocate money into the community. They get, I, they understand the closest people to the pain should be the people at the table making decisions when we talk about violence prevention. Yeah, absolutely. Do you feel, since we're talking about some policymakers and government, do you feel that gun laws have affected your work? I know here in Massachusetts, in order to have a handgun or any firearm, you have to have a firearm license. So as I mentioned, um, when we started, um, I did a lot of work around um, 
policies and gun laws and straw buying prior to me starting We Are Better Together. And can you quickly explain what straw buying is? Okay, so straw buying um, is when somebody buys guns for someone that's not able to buy them legally. So somebody that's deemed mentally ill, somebody with a criminal background, um, a juvenile, and the work that I've done, you know, with Operation Lipstick, we found out that that was one of the ways, one of the ways that guns were ending up in Massachusetts from surrounding states. Although Massachusetts has some of the strongest gun laws, we were still getting guns coming in from surrounding states. Um, New Hampshire, Maine, where some of the gun laws are not as strict or they're able to buy more than one gun at one time that are ending up in our community. And, you know, the NRA, you know, they're powerful. You know, although we're more advanced in Massachusetts than some spaces, some yeah. places. Yeah. Little backwards, like when my son got murdered, you know, from my understanding, it was two young men. And I wanted to know, how does a 14-year-old get a gun that never left their housing development? Yeah. And that's what got made me want to be educated. And how were these guns ending up in our community? Like, like where's the source? It's not. Right. It's not coming from Massachusetts, right? right? With the laws, well, surrounding states. Yeah, this, that's how mm -hmm. from the outside. And. Yeah, they're not selling guns at Super uh, Stop and Shop or Walgreens, right. you know, because most of these young men and women never even left their their neighborhood. Right. It just shows the need for a national standard. Right. Because even if it varies state from state, that doesn't mean that your state is safe. Right. Right. So for these families that are survivors of trauma, what kind of services do they need to help them heal? So it varies. One of the things I'm so grateful with our new um, mayor and other politicians that are getting involved, one of the things that we realize that there's a great need for a family impacted by community harm. So what does that mean if someone's loved one was shot or if their house got shot up or something happened and they need emergency housing? We had never had anything in place for placement. Although we have so many services for family impacted by domestic violence, but when we talk about community harm, most recently, through Sheila Dillon and other people that work on housing, they have created funding for families impacted by community harm. Everyone's living paycheck to paycheck. Nobody thinks that they're gonna have to take everything they own and move their home due to community violence in terms of safety. So one of the things that We Are Better Together provides is temporary housing. Right. If, if someone's house has been uh, I guess attacked with a firearm or something like that. So can you can you explain the situations where temporary housing is so vital for those for those families? Yes. Yeah, so we do have a contract with one of the um, hotels outside of Boston, and we give like respite care. So someone may house might have been shot up and they're scared. Um, there's no services in place, or they haven't been able to connect with anyone. We're able to temporarily put them in a hotel for a week or two. While we work with other community organizations, the Peace Institute is very instrumental. They're one of our partners that we work very close with, the Louis D. Brown Peace Institute. And we'll try to help them with relocation. We provide court advocacy. Most often that women that have children that's causing harm, nobody's showing up in court with them to support them. Um, we provide, you know, all our services since COVID has went virtual. We do virtual support groups. Um, 
We do COVID relief food. Um, we help with bills. We help with rental assistance. Our job is support that family and whatever they may need. So you never know. Nobody plans on burying their child. So we don't know what our need may be. You know, when I lost my son, thank God I still had a job and I, and I had the support that I needed. I was out for 60 days and I was still being paid. But there's so many survivors that mentally they have checked out that they're now on medication or on substance and they may need help with rental assistance. Just someone sitting with them. Yeah. You know, a script doesn't come with this when you're impacted by a community harm or incarceration. And then it was so many women during COVID that was like, you know, experiencing grief all over again because they had children that were incarcerated that were, you know, getting COVID left and right, that yeah. they had no access to, that they couldn't even find out you know, were they doing well? Were they in the infirmary? So COVID was like another le um, layer of grief for a lot of the women that we work with. Yeah. And can you also explain, I know you've spoken very highly of the retreats that you, the healing retreats that you have. So why are those so important to these women and what do they look like? So what we do is we bring women from all over different states that have been impacted by community harm, which is a homicide, um, um, injury, some cases their children are paralyzed, and also the children, women that's children has caused harm. We bring them together for a three-day healing retreat where we do like restorative justice, healing circles, um, trauma-informed workshops, massages, and it is so powerful to watch two moms come together that one, her child has taken someone's life and the other one has been lost due to homicide. Um, one of the great things we did this year that we were able to bring mothers and daughters. Yeah. And we realized that mom and daughters grieve differently so we're in the process of building out programming for them as well. What do what do those differences look like between mothers and daughters in well, terms like, of their grief? Again, when we talk about trauma, right? When we talk about, you know, um, you may have three siblings and everyone's telling a different story, right? Right. Someone may say, oh, we have food in the refrigerator every day. Another <laughs> one may say, we never had food. Right. A mom was never home. Right. So there may be some blaming Mom, if you wouldn't have left. Mom, if you wouldn't have left us mm -hmm. at your aunt's. Different circumstances, because part of grief is denial, blame, shame, and we honor everyone where they're at. You know, so we may have mom and daughter, they sign up and they're at the retreat and we may do a trauma-informed workshop. And then that person may look at one of our workshops and say, you know what, it's your fault to why my brother's dead. It's your fault that you were on drugs years ago or you were dealing with a domestic violence relationship that we made the choices we did. And I've, I've really appreciated you being so open and willing to tell your story. What motivates you to continue this work? Because you have also been really affected by this, this trauma and it's so admirable to see how strong you are and continue to do this, not only for yourself, but for everyone else. So. What motivates you to, to continue your activism and, and why do you feel that this work is so important? 
Yeah, I didn't get in a lot about myself, but I am someone in recovery for 22 plus years. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. I'm a survivor of many things, you know, and, you know, prior to losing my son, I always say I have my mother's heart. I've always helped people and gave back, but I never knew a tragedy would hit me in 2007 when my son Danny was murdered. You know, and I believe like how you truly make a difference is paying it forward. If we really truly want change in our community and in others, we pay it forward because I am one of many from our community that people poured into me. So how dare I not pour into others, right? And as I touch one, that's interrupting the cycle. And as that person, people always say, thank you, Miss Ruthie, thank you. No, all I want you to do is pay it forward. So just before we wrap up here, I have one more question for you. In public health writing and communications, we try to use short sentences to explain our message or our mission clearly to the public. So for you, Ruth, when it comes to your mission and people who experience trauma in marginalized communities, what's your short sentence? Looking at it from a historical lens, not the person's behavior, but really unpacking the circumstances on what they have been through. Oh yeah, I got plenty. Yeah, is that his daughter? Is that his That's Denasia. Oh, she's she's so beautiful. Look at this one when she was a newborn. That's him. Oh my gosh. Yeah, this other picture. Is with, that Danny with her? Yeah, she was like not even two hours old. Wow. He looks so, so happy to see her. Yeah, he was. PHPOD features conversations with public health influencers. We cover topics that may be familiar and sometimes uncomfortable. This podcast series is brought to you by the Boston University School of Public Health and Public Health Post, which informs and inflects the broader conversation on health and social justice. Every day we feature new articles about the state of the health of the population. Join the conversation by following us on social media and by subscribing to the PHP Friday Roundup to receive our stories of the week delivered directly to your inbox by visiting publichealthpost.org.